Looking forward to our time together this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 8. This is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday that the church historically has reflected on Jesus coming into Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. The, the, the Israelites were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting from Psalm 18 as we, we read earlier here today. And they're welcoming King Jesus as a humble king coming into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was looking for a leader, a king, a, mess, a messiah who would come and rescue them from their enemies, from the Roman oppressors. All right? And so it just so works out for us that as we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 8 where Israel demands God for a king. And up to this point in the story, in the Old Testament, Israel did not have an, an earthly king. Okay, Israel had a theocracy. God was their king. God fought for Israel. God delivered the Israelites from the Egyptians. God raised up judges. Okay? So this is the backdrop. We're in the times of the judges. God raised up judges to lead the people of God. And what, what we've mentioned already in this series is that in Judges it says there was no king in Israel, so everyone did what was right in their own sight. Alright, so, so Judges was, is, is preparing us for, the Bible's preparing us for a kingship. All right? And so Israel finally says, we want a king. All right? And so we're going to look at this pivotal point in the history of Israel where they ask for a king. And that's what I've titled this sermon today. Give us a king. Now, we all need a leader. We need somebody to lead us well. And we've all seen and experienced those who are in positions of leadership lead poorly, unrighteously, corruptly. And we have all felt the pain of poor leadership in this fallen and broken world in which we live. Israel has already felt that in a number of ways. They, they felt the void of a, of, of, of a godly leadership. And God was gracious to raise up a judge. As we've talked about, a Samuel who was a prophet. Somebody who would speak for the Lord. Somebody who would represent God in His ways and instruct the people in God's ways and intercede for the people according to God's will. And as we looked at last week, we had, we had a positive point in the story. We see in, in Israel's his, history, we see negative cycles. They, they forsake God. They turn away from God. Bad things happen. They experience the pain of poor decisions. And then the, the, that pain leads them to a place of desperation, crying out for help. And God graciously responds to their cry, and He raises up a judge. He raises up a leader. He raises up somebody to, to be an instrument, a conduit of His help for His people. 
And so last week we looked at returning to God. Uh, Samuel called the Israelites to return to God, to put away the, 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 the false gods, the, the foreign gods, and to direct their hearts to the Lord. And that's what they did. They had a little revival in Israel. They had, they had a renewal. They had a revival that took place in, in Israel. They, they returned to the Lord and God fought for them when their enemies attacked them. Right? So we had a beautiful positive story last week. Now we're in the cycle where there's a negative story. We see Israel again straying from God. Okay? But this time, it's not as obvious an open rebellion. It's more subtle this time. They're working within the permissible um, uh, rights that they have, if you will. They're, they're not asking uh, on the surface. It doesn't look like they're doing anything sinful. But underneath, as we, as we look at the story, we see that there is something deeper here that God is grieved with and He addresses. And so let's, let's pray and let's look at this together. Heavenly Father... We invite you in this space. Come and reign in our hearts, in our minds. As we open your word, as we read your word, would you speak to us? And would you lead us away from sin, not into temptation, and deliver us from the evil one? May your kingdom come, and may your will be done. In our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. First Samuel chapter 8, starting in verse 1. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abisha. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together, and they came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people and all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done. And from the day I brought them out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. 
And some will plow his ground and to reap from reap his harvest and make his implements of war the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards, olive orchards, and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And he will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice, obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us. That we may also be like all the nations. That our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. And we know those of us who've read ahead, we know in 1 Samuel chapter 9 that Saul is that very first earthly king that Israel had. So here's our big idea. God desires his people to look to him for leadership. And when they reject God's reign in their lives, they seek and, and seek substitute. They seek substitutes which lead to trouble. God desires his people to look to him for leadership. And when they reject God's reign in their lives, they seek substitutes which leads to trouble. Okay, so first let's start with Samuel's sons. Here is a repeated pattern that we've already seen in the story of 1 Samuel. We, we have some sons who are in leadership, hereditary leadership, okay, who are not walking in the ways of the Lord. So we've already seen this with Eli, right? Samuel's foster dad, the priest, Eli the priest, and, and his two sons, who were ungodly, doing some terrible things, supposed to be spiritual leaders, and they were leading people astray, doing terrible things. So here, we have Samuel, who made his sons judges over Israel, yet his sons did not walk in the ways, in his ways. So Samuel, we've seen that Samuel is a godly man who was walking with the Lord. Okay? We see there's a God, he's a godly man that was walking with the Lord. And the text doesn't indict Samuel for the actions of his sons like the text does indict Eli for not restraining his sons when they were doing evil. Okay? But it just makes you wonder, as you read this, what happened here? Because we're told in Deuteronomy 6 that the Israelites were to diligently teach their children the commands of the Lord. They, the Israelites were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And they were to diligently 
Teach their children. Talk about God's commands when they sit down, when they walk, when they lie down. That it's to be a lifestyle that's leading, loving the Lord and leading our family to follow God. Right? Now we're not told what this looked like, what this looks like in Samuel's life. Okay? Now, I do think it's interesting to note back at the end of chapter 7 that Samuel was traveling in ministry. He had three different places that he traveled to annually. All right? And then he would come home to Ramah. Right? And so the text doesn't say that he did anything wrong, but he was very busy and focused on ministry. And I can't help, knowing what meant the nature of ministry, I can't help but speculate what was going on there. But the text doesn't say, doesn't charge him with any wrong. But his sons aren't walking with the Lord. And I think, I think this, this is one thing it highlights is that parents ultimately can't save their children. Salvation comes from the Lord, right? And parents can't control the decisions of their children. They can lead them. They can set a godly example for them. They can instruct them diligently and teach them. But ultimately, we as parents need God to intervene in their lives and open their blind eyes and change their hearts. We need God to intervene and God the rescue. And they need a personal relationship with God. They can't ride the coattails of our relationship with God. Okay? And so Proverbs does teach that if you train up a child in the way he should go when he's older, he will not depart from it. Now I think it's a problem when 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 we see that as a promise that's automatic, that's 100% rather than a principle, a general principle of wisdom. When you do this, this is what happens. But there are exceptions. Because ultimately, we're not the ones in control. But we're responsible to do our part as parents. So that's all I'll say about that. Nevertheless, it, it, this situation contributes to the issue. This issue contributes to the situation that Israel finds themselves in. Samuel's old. His sons were not following in his ways. And Israel needed some leadership. So the elders in Israel came to Samuel. And they, they, let, they highlighted, they, they, they said, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. So three things. I mean, that seems reasonable, doesn't it? Hey, Samuel, you're getting old. I mean, that seems like a, a good business plan. If you're a business leader, like, okay, we need, we need a leader. We need a plan. We need a system. We need something that's going to work. So what was wrong with their request that seems reasonable, seems like a, a pretty reasonable request? Hey, you're getting old. Your sons aren't following your ways. We don't want them to lead, right? So give us a king like all the other nations. Okay? Now, they hadn't experienced a king yet. But, but the one thing that I would, would pose is, in, in that reasoning is, with that hereditary leadership passed on down from a judge to another judge, okay, that, that wasn't working right. That obviously wasn't going to work. Well, what about having a king, a monarchy, a hereditary monarchy? So you've got a king who's going to pass on down the leadership to another king. 
How's that going to work? How have we seen that work in history? Right? There's, there's, some, flaw, there's some issues with that that happen. Okay? And so what was wrong with the request? Now, now I, I think on the surface, it's not so much that they were asking for a king, but the, the issue that God has is why they were asking for the king. Okay? Because in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the law made provision for a king, and it gave instructions that when Israel has a king, these are the standards that that king is to operate by. That king is to write out manually a whole copy of the law, of the Torah, that he may fear the Lord, that he may walk in the Lord's ways. And he goes on and he lists and he says that that king shall not accumulate a bunch of war horses and wives. And, 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 and build his own little kingdom, right? And, and so, so God gives Israel some instructions on what that king is to be like. And, and ultimately, the issue here is that Israel rejected God as their king. So it was subtle. Now, Samuel took this personally. Like Samuel, he, he, he was burdened by their request and he brought it to the Lord. And I love his example of godly leadership. He repeated to the Lord what, what he heard them say. And God, in essence, told Samuel, don't take it personally, Samuel. Ultimately, it's not you that, that they're rejecting. It's, it's me that they're rejecting as leader of their lives. And he says this in verse 7. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. This reminds me of Jesus' words, by the way, when he sent out his disciples to go represent him to carry his message. And he told his disciples and apostles that those who reject you, they're rejecting me and my message. And so Israel rejected God as their king. Bill Ralph Davis says that the king is not merely a substitute for Samuel, but for Yahweh. We have, we, what we have here is simply the old idolatry with a new twist. Okay? They wanted a, a king of their own choosing. They wanted to be like all the other nations. In 1 Samuel chapter 12. Samuel is addressing Israel and he says, when you, when you saw that Nahash, the king of the Amorites, came against you, you said to me, no, but a king shall reign over us when the Lord your God was your king. And now behold the king you have chosen for whom you have asked. Behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Now prior what we saw in chapter 7, when they got in a bind and their enemies were coming against them, they asked Samuel to cry out to the Lord for them. And that's what he did. He interceded. God had a judge there, a prophet, an intercessor, somebody who would help them, help Israel look to God for leadership and look to God for deliverance. And you know, it worked pretty good the last time. They were in a, in a predicament. But this time... 
They wanted a little more security, a little bit more worldly security. They wanted an earthly king like the other nations who would lead in the fight for them. When God has already proved that he is fighting for them. He took out the greatest military in the world at the time when he took out the Egyptians to deliver the Israelites. And throughout Judges, we see God delivering his people. And so we have the root issue that Israel rejected God as their king. Another theologian says that Samuel experiences what Moses, the prophets, and even Jesus experienced. Quote, we do not want this man to reign over us. Jesus told a parable about this. And this is the heart of humanity. This is the sinful heart of humanity. We don't want God, God God-given authority. We don't want his reign over us. We want to be the masters of our destiny, the captains of our ship, the Lord of our lives. Mm -hmm. But the problem is when we take the when we take the controls, we wreck the ship. We mess things up. And so we need a king. And what we see in the scripture is that Yahweh is a better leader, a better king. Psalms tells us, Psalm 118, we read some of this psalm today. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Psalm 146.3, put not your trust in princes, and a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Psalm 33, 17. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. For by its great might it cannot rescue. And so in the Psalms what we have here is we have the psalmist directing the people of God to not put their hope in an earthly leader. To not put their hope in military might but to put their hope in the Lord, in the name of the Lord, to call upon the name of the Lord when they find themselves in trouble. And we do find ourselves in trouble, don't we? And we have the help that we need. But what's our knee-jerk reaction when trouble comes? What's our knee-jerk reaction when things look like chaos? And we don't see a way out. Are we calling on the name of the Lord? Are we looking for that next leader that's going to have the right plan and the right resources to try to fix the big problems in our life or in the world? And God points us back to Him, to His reign, His kingdom. Now notice that Israel wanted to be like all the other nations. I think this is important to note. They said, no, But there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations. That that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Now, God made provision for a king and eventually God foresaw and foreknew that there would be a king. 
right? That there would be a, there would be a Saul and there would be a, a David, somebody that God chose as a man after his own heart that would shepherd, shepherd Israel with integrity of heart and lead them by the skillfulness of his hands. But even David had his flaws and failures. And David points us to the great eternal king, Jesus, who would come. I'm getting ahead of myself. So Israel desired to be like all the other nations. They wanted to conform to the standards of of the nations around them and find security in in an earthly king. And yet, Israel was called to be distinct. Israel was called to be holy. Israel was called to be a nonconformist to the ways of this world, just as the church is. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, you can read that whole chapter, and it speaks about their distinctive, their their, distinctive, their difference, that the distinction that God has for them. He wants them to be holy and set apart. Deuteronomy 4, 7 and 8 says, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? Or what great nation is there that has statues and rules so righteous as, as all this law that I set before you today? So Israel was called to be Distinct to be holy as the Lord is holy. And we're told this in the New Testament as well. Alexander McLaren says that one of the first lessons that we have to learn is a wholesome disregard for other people's ways. I like that. We have to learn a wholesome disregard for other people's ways, especially other people's ways that don't conform with God's ways, the ways of this world. Perhaps this is what the Apostle Paul, this story was what the Apostle Paul had in mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as he was penning Romans 12 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world. But be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The Israelites were appealing for what was permissible, and God gave it to them. Are we seeking God's best for us? Are we seeking to squeeze out whatever we can get from him, our little loopholes, and make him do our will and what we think is best? Or are we surrendered to his will as king and Lord? And so to do this, we have to renew our minds. And we have to push back on the world's ways, the world's influences that seek to squeeze us into its mold. Because we're different. The children of God, the people of God are different, and we are to embrace that. Now, I know that that may not feel good at school or feel good in the community at times. Like There may be some some pushback that we get from those around us who look at us us as bigots or stuck up or um, um, prideful or or, uh, legalistic because there are certain things that we're not engaging in. Because God has marked our lives. 
And we belong to Him. We're to be nonconformists like salmon, which will swim upstream. Right? We need, to, we need to go against the current of this world's culture. Alright? So, when, when I hear my kids, you know, come, come home from school and they say, I want this like so-and-so. I want this like so-and-so. Right? Immediately, some red flags go up. You want this so like so, so you can be like so-and-so? So now it may not be a bad request. I want this, like so and so though. So, but when you, when when we probe as parents, sometimes we find that the why behind what they're requesting is not the best. And so we want to we want to ask those questions, and we want to ask those questions of ourselves. We may be asking God and looking for something that's permissible and okay in our lives, but why do we want it? Wow. You know, now I can start stepping on toes here, but I'm not going to. I'll let the Holy Spirit highlight whatever that is for you. (laughs) But I will have some application here at the end. And so what we see here is an example, as as the New Testament tells us, as an example for us to learn from. We have negative and positive examples in the Old Testament. And here's a negative one. And we, get, and we get to learn from their painful consequences. Okay? There are consequences that come from having your own king, the king of your own choosing, like all the other nations. And Samuel told them about those consequences. He said, a king will draft your sons into military. He'll take your sons, send them to the military. They'll plow the fields and prepare for war. A king will draft your young women. He'll take your daughters and work them in his palace. A king will tax your crops and flocks. Taxes, have you heard of taxes, Israel? You're about to learn about the IRS here. And Uncle Sam's going to get his little cut. All right? Because it takes finances to run a government. Right? Right? So he'll take taxes from you. A king will take your best animals and servants. A king will limit your personal freedom so that you become servants to him, slaves to him. And so Samuel warned the Israelites, this is what's going to happen. God told them, warn them. Give them the king. Give them what they're asking for. Now sometimes God will give, give us what... We're asking for not because it's a sign of his favor on our life, but it's a it's our it's our stubbornness that just won't let it go. And God says, "Okay, you want that? You can have that." And we experience the pain of rejecting him, relying on him, going our own way. And God lets us learn the hard way. I don't know about you, but I want the wisdom that learns from the pain and the failures of others to avoid painful, foolish decisions in my own life. It's been said that a that a um, an average man, let's see, a fool, a, a wise man learns from the experiences of others. The average person learns from their own experiences. But a fool learns from no one's experiences. 
We want to be the wise person that the Scripture points us to, to learn from others who've gone before us. And we have in Scripture those who've gone before us. In history, those who've gone before us. We have parents, elders, older people who've gone before us. And we can take, get wisdom, glean wisdom, listen and heed. But it's human nature as young people it's human nature, it's humanity to think, no, it's going to be different with me. I, I know how to do this, right? Moms and dads, we, we sure, you know, we, we, we feel it. Like when, when our kids who have lived, you know, maybe a third of what we've lived or less or more, depending on how old we are, think that they know more than us, right? And, and how arrogant it is when we think that we know more than God and the wisdom that he gives us through his scripture. So the consequences, notice in these verses, this, this, the concept of this king will take, take, take. He's going to take. It's going to be costly to have this king of your choosing over you. It's going to, he's going to take from your sons, your daughters, your crops, your animals, and, and even your own personal freedom. But King Jesus is different. He came to serve, and he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is our king. He is the perfect king. And yet he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows. And he brought his kingdom into this world and destroyed the works of the devil. That's what he came to do, to free Humanity from the oppressor of Satan and sin and its consequences. The Israelites thought that what they needed most was deliverance from Rome. When they, when, they, when they didn't realize what they needed most was deliverance from sin and Satan reigning, the kingdom of darkness reigning in their lives. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's not a king like all the other nations have. He said, my kingdom is not of this world when he stood before Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would be fighting. We'd pick up swords and we'd throw down. But my kingdom's not of this world. It's different. Not a king like the other kings. Right? He's a king who came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You take a glimpse into Revelation chapter 7 and you get a, a glimpse of his kingdom come. Revelation seven fifteen through 17. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor the scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to the springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eye. Christ is our King. Tim Keller says that Jesus is the only Lord who, if you receive him, will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him... He will forgive you eternally. He's the only Lord who will fulfill you completely. And if you fail him, he will forgive you 
eternally. Christ is our King. Eugene Peterson on Matthew 21 says that if you refuse to acknowledge the ownership of God and your position as a steward of life, there will be no meaning or beauty or fullness in anything you do. Even in the marvelous wonder, wonders of material things, material created by God won't give you happiness. You'll descend into a downward spiral of neurotic anxiety and unhappy pleasure-seeking for your constant denial of God's central place. Won't get rid of Him. Amen? So what does it look like for Jesus to reign in our lives as King? What does it look like to have Yahweh as King of our lives? We don't want to conform to the world and have a king like the other nations. We don't want to reject the authority and the reign of God in our lives. We want to receive and embrace Him and His reign in our life, His leadership in our life, because we trust that He has what's best for us. And in a fallen, broken world where all other leaders fail us, political leaders fail us, spiritual leaders fail us, business leaders fail us, Fail us. Educational leaders fail us. Christ doesn't fail us. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the leader we need. He's the leader we long for to reign. And so what does it look like for Him to reign in our lives? You know what it looks like? It looks like righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is the kingdom of God. This is what the life looks like, the heart looks like, where He's reigning in. The relationships that are marked by His kingdom activity are righteous relationships, peaceful relationships, joyful relationships. The heart that He's reigning in is made righteous. That peace with God and peace with others has joy. Notice the emotional impact that the kingdom of God has on our lives. Notice the relational impact that the kingdom of God has on our lives. Notice the volitional impact that the kingdom of God has on our lives. We want to do His will now. Yes. Because He's changed our heart. See, that's the deepest issue. It's the heart. Yep. We, we, we look for outward circumstances to change as if that's going to make us happy. That's going to give us peace. That's what the world needs. Mere education. Mere, mere uh, uh, um, more finance, resources. I, I think we need those things, but we need more than those things. More, more laws. We can, we can have the best leader with the best, most righteous laws and Still, the heart of man will rebel against that leadership and rebel against those laws. And so it's the heart of man that needs to be changed. Yes, amen. Hallelujah. And I, 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 I say yes to we need more godly leaders and yes, we need more righteous laws. But we can't put all our hope in that. Yeah. That structure, that frame. We need the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. That's not of this world. And it needs to permeate permeate every area of our lives. And so what does it look like for Christ to reign in our lives? It looks like we live for His glory. Mm. We don't live for ourselves. We live unto the Lord. 
He died for us that those of us who live should no longer live for ourselves, but that we should live for Him. Hallelujah. It looks like us loving people. The love of God flowing through us into the lives of others. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what Jesus lived like. And those who are a part of His kingdom, kingdom citizens, have these marks in their lives. They love people. Service. They serve others. The King came to serve. He didn't come to take, take, take. He came to serve and give His life as a ransom for many. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. We serve. We let our light shine before men that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. Prayerfulness is what it looks like. Because the kingdom of God comes through our prayers. First and foremost, we're talking to God about the problems in this world because He's the one who can do something about them. Sometimes we're talking to everyone else except God about the problems in this world as if they're going to fix them. But God's the one who we need to fix us and fix the world around us. He has done something about it. He will do something about it. Amen. And He's doing something about it right now. Hallelujah. Through His church. We are the body of Christ. The hands and the feet of Jesus. The salt of the earth. The light of the world. And He works through our prayers. Amen. What does it look like for Christ to reign in us as King? It means obedience to His word. That means he's Lord, he's king, and we don't just live that. We don't just say that with our mouths, we live it with our lives, and our, our, our actions show our allegiance to King Jesus more than any other earthly allegiance. Yeah, we're citizens of the United States of America here. And praise God for all the blessings we have. We should honor the leadership, pray for the leadership, seek good in this land. But our first and foremost allegiance and identity is sons and daughters of the King. We're citizens of heaven, as Paul said. And that changes how we operate. And so we operate, we're, we're to be distinct in our mode of operation. God is holy and he's made us holy. And so here's some, here's some tendencies that Del Ralph Davis points out from this text. Some human tendencies mirrored in this text. We see Israel. Sometimes we can just be like, man, Israel, you're so bad. Glad I'm not like that. Read those terrible sinners in the Bible. But when we read the story, we're confronted with our own brokenness as well. If we're honest, with it, if we humbly read it and we slow down and we ask God, God, what are you trying to say to me through this? I know you're not just telling the story so that I can just know what happened then. But how does this connect with my life? What are you putting your what's your most pressing issue with me today that you want to highlight? And so one one thing is we have a tendency to access our problems mechanically rather than spiritually. Okay? We have a tendency to try to address, just change some things. It's more about technique versus about the heart of repentance turning back to God. Instead of looking to God for help, we're more interested in prescribing what form God's help must take. We need to be okay with God helping us in some ways maybe that we weren't expecting Him to bring His help and His grace to us. His strength in our weakness. 
Yahweh will sometimes give us our request to our own peril. God's granting of our request may not be a sign of his favor, but our obstinacy, our stubbornness. So there's a couple things there. And then he says that 1 Samuel 8 is your mirror. It reveals Israel and you. How easily you misplace your trust. How ashamed you are to be different. How resistant to any word that does not agree with your opinion. There you are revealed. And so let us humbly look at this text and allow the Spirit of God to bring conviction cleansing and change where he desires to bring in our lives. And so for application, be aware of rejecting God by making someone or something a substitute for him in your life. The prophet Jeremiah addressed this in these powerful words in Jeremiah 2.13. He said, For my people have committed two evils, They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they've hewn hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. It's ridiculous. It's absurd. picture, Picture somebody carrying these buckets with holes in them. Hey, go fetch some water for the family. And bringing back those buckets... And you get there, and there's no water to give. You fill them up, but those waters can't. That those buckets can't hold the water. God says, "I'm the fountain. I'm the I'm the source of life, joy and satisfaction, happiness, fulfillment, purpose. I'm the source. And you've turned Israel's. You've turned from me. And so, God forbid that we should do that subtly." Now, I think most of us here won't do that openly and rebelliously to say, man, I'm just, I don't believe in God. I'm not going to serve God. But we might be more tempted to be subtle in our rejection of God's reign in our lives by seeking those things that are more permissible to us and to within our Christian culture. But we must ask, why? Why do we want these things? Embrace your God-given distinctions from this world. And don't be ashamed of Jesus or his words. 1 Peter 2.9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Embrace that. And don't be ashamed. Okay, you might seem awkward. You might seem awkward to people around you because of your standards of, of, of righteousness, of right living, what's right, what you do and what you don't do, and how you operate, how you conduct your relationships before marriage. You don't sleep around with your, with your boyfriend or your girlfriend. When you're married, you don't sleep around with someone that you're not married to. You honor the God-given covenant. With your finances, you're not greedy and materialistic. You're generous and a steward of God's finances that he's entrusted you with. With your words, you don't say things that other people are saying and make the same dirty jokes that they make and laugh at them as well and just kind of go with the flow. 
or watch the same things that the world watches and entertain yourself with things that grieve the heart of God. These are just some examples. We're different. We're called to be holy, and this is not a stuffy, crusty, negative thing. This is a beautiful thing, a good thing, a positive thing. It's for our own joy. It's for our own good, and it's for God's glory. And lastly, heed the wisdom in God-given warnings to avoid an unnecessary path of pain. Heed the wisdom of God-given warnings to avoid the unnecessary path of pain. While what we may be pursuing is permissible, is it wise? Is it what's best? Is it, are we seeking the will of God? Are we seeking to just see what will He allow me to do? What can I do within the limits of... If We're asking the wrong question if that's what we're asking. Like, how far can I go before I'm sinning? Right? We should be seeking the will of God, the kingdom of God first. His kingdom, His righteousness in our lives. And so let's respond to God in prayer. I have a prayer up here, a short prayer. If you all would stand with me, Kevin, team, if you guys would come up and lead us. It's a phrase taken from... Jesus' prayer that he taught his disciples in Matthew 6. And then a prayer taken from Psalm 86. And if we could just pray this together and then respond with the song of prayer. Here we go. Father in heaven, may your kingdom come and your will be done in our lives and in our world. Teach us your way, O Lord, that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name. We will give thanks to you, O Lord our God, with our whole heart, and we will glorify your name forever. We say yes to you in your reign in your kingdom have your way Lord your will is good acceptable and perfect forgive us where we have strayed where we have treated Christianity like a buffet and we've taken and we've pick and choose the things that we think we like and the things that we don't. May we embrace the whole table that you have for us. The whole feast. The whole experience of being a citizen of your kingdom. Of being a son or daughter in your family. And may it change us. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. Lead us not into temptation and deliver us from the evil one, we pray. Amen.